Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 101, Riot Classics. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to discuss highlights from Boston's long and storied history of rioting. We'll include three classic shows covering the 1919 police strike, impressment riots in 1747, and the Broad Street Riot. First up is the 1919 Boston police strike, a story that first aired as part of episode 28 last May. In the post-World War I inflation of the summer of 1919, Boston police officers were earning wages set in 1857. Around the country, workers were striking, while the upper classes feared a Bolshevik-influenced revolution. When 72% of the police force walked off the job, lawlessness reigned in Boston for days. Governor Calvin Coolidge sent in the state militia, emerged a hero, and paved his way to the White House. Battle in Boston streets. Cavalry charges with sabers and infantry with bayonets. Three men killed, many hurt. Gamblers, thugs, and thieves operate openly and commit crimes against women. Fierce fight in Scully Square. Public fiercely indignant. Women pursued by mobs. This is a sampling of just a few of the headlines that Americans woke up to on September 10th, 1919, the day after 1,117 Boston police officers, 72% of the force, failed to report for duty. While this shocked the country, this was not a surprise to the governor, police commissioner, mayor, or anyone else who had been paying attention. To understand how the series of events leading to the police strike unfolded, you have to remind yourself of what was happening in the world at that time. Two years earlier, in 1917, the Russian Empire collapsed, and within months, the Bolsheviks, led by Lenin, overthrew the provisional government and established the Russian-Soviet Federative Socialist Republic. The American economy was in a shambles after World War I, and inflation was felt disproportionately by the Boston police. In 1918, the annual salary for patrolmen capped at $1,400 after six years of service, but officers had to buy their own uniforms and equipment which cost over $200. Pay for new officers, $2 per day, had not risen since 1857. That's 60 years behind the market. In the war years, inflation dramatically diminished the value of a police officer's salary. From 1913 to May 1919, the cost of living rose by 76%, while police wages rose by just 18%. In comparison, they were earning less than an unskilled steel worker, half as much as a carpenter or mechanic, and 50 cents a day less than a streetcar conductor. You can imagine the resentment and discontent that this must have caused. During this time, the labor movement was taking off. In 1919, one-fifth of the country's workers went on strike. Locally, textile workers in Lawrence walked out in protest of a 54-hour work week. Boston telephone operators interrupted much of New England's phone service on a strike, and Boston's elevated train workers walked off the job as well. In total, there were 396 strikes in Massachusetts alone. There was a widespread fear of communism and a labor-led revolution, and given those numbers, you can see why. In addition to low wages, the police had several other serious grievances. Officers worked seven days and between 70 and 100 hours per week with no pay for time spent in court, and only one day off every other week. They were required to sleep in station houses kept in unsanitary conditions. 
Tensions were heightened as the dispute broke along ethnic, political, and class lines. By 1919, Boston was already a Democratic city, and the commissioner was appointed by the Republican governor, Calvin Coolidge. This is a notable difference from today's system, where the mayor of Boston appoints the commissioner for the Boston Police Department. At that time, Mayor Peters was in the difficult position of running a city protected by a police force that he had no control over. Police Commissioner Edwin Curtis was a conservative Yankee elite overseeing a predominantly Irish Catholic police force. As the conservatives do today, he resented the growing political power of immigrants and the Democrats they elected to office. He was of no mind to grant concessions to those he thought were upending social order. When by June he had failed to address the officers' grievances, they began to consider unionization with support from the American Federation of Labor, a relatively moderate organization. A charter was granted in August. Massachusetts Attorney General Albert Pillsbury stated that the organized workman has taken us by the throat and has us at his mercy, and put forward legislation to make unionization illegal for public employees. The mayor was off the grid for a vacation in Maine, and the police commissioner asserted that police were state officers, not employees in the legal sense of the word. Nevertheless, they persisted. On August 15th, over a thousand policemen gathered at a hall in the South End, where they engaged in spirited rhetoric that would have made our founding fathers proud. The overwhelming majority voted to unionize and join the AFL. With that, the issue was no longer about low wages and rat-infested barracks, but about the right to unionize. In response, Commissioner Curtis issued a general order forbidding police officers to join any organization, club, or body outside the department making an exception only for patriotic organizations such as the American Legion. His administration argued that such a rule was based on the conflict of interest between police officers' duties and union membership. He stated, It is, or should be, apparent to any thinking person that the police department of this or any other city cannot fulfill its duty to the entire public if its members are subject to the direction of an organization existing outside the department. If troubles and disturbances arise where the interests of this organization and the interests of other elements and classes in the community conflict, the situation immediately arises, which always arises when a man attempts to serve two masters. He must fail either in his duty as a policeman or in his obligation to the organization that controls him. Commissioner Curtis refused to meet with the eight members of the police union's committee. He suspended them and 11 others who held various union offices and scheduled trials to determine if they had violated his general order. Mayor Peters sought to play an intermediary role by appointing a citizens' committee to review the dispute about union representation. The group recommended that Curtis and the police agree to a police union without AFL ties and without the right to strike. Curtis, in turn, would recognize the police union, and the union would agree to remain independent and unaffiliated. They also recommended that no action be taken against the 19 men whom Curtis had suspended. Four of Boston's five newspapers, as well as the Boston Chamber of Commerce, backed this compromise. Curtis, with the support of Governor Coolidge, rejected the committee's proposal. He proceeded with department trials of the 19 men, and on September 8th found them guilty of union activity. Rather than dismiss them from the police force, he extended their suspensions. 
He later explained that he was giving them an opportunity to reconsider their actions and avoid discharges, which would have been irrevocable. The police union members responded that same day by voting 1,134 to 2 in favor of a strike and scheduled it to start at evening roll call the next day. Their stated grounds omitted wages and working conditions. The strike's rationale was to protest the commissioner's denial of their right to ally themselves with the AFL. In anticipation of the strike, one newspaper warned the police that their eventual defeat was guaranteed, that they would lose, because behind Boston in this skirmish with Bolshevism stands Massachusetts, and behind Massachusetts stands America. Accepting that the strike would happen, Mayor Peters requested that Governor Coolidge dispatch the State Guard. However, the police commissioner assured Coolidge that volunteers could fill in. Approximately 400 students, faculty, and alumni were recruited from Harvard. Imagine that. The police force is replaced by college students. Maybe not the best idea. At 5.45 p.m. on September 9th, three-quarters of Boston's police force went on strike. 1,117 out of 1,544 officers failed to report for work. Coolidge assigned 100 members of the state's Metropolitan Park Police Department to replace the striking officers, but 58 of them refused to participate. By 8 p.m., a crowd estimated at 10,000 gathered in Scully Square, then a destination for vaudeville theaters and other slightly less respectable pastimes. The looting began with a cigar store and quickly spread. The crowds reveled, including many displays of public gambling, until after 1 a.m. Finger-pointing began the next morning. Mayor Peters issued a press release saying he was not to blame, and he called out the state guard. He used an emergency clause meant to take control of the police whenever tumult, riot, and violent disturbance happened within the city. Coolidge reacted by issuing a statement that as governor, the guard would be under his control. Both claimed that they would be the one solely responsible for restoring order. 5,000 guardsmen were dispatched, taking the city from virtually no police force to extreme militarization in a matter of hours. At Scully Square, there were confrontations between the volunteer police and the crowd, resulting in several Harvard students being cornered. When the first troop of cavalry arrived, they had to intervene to rescue groups of volunteers. Several guardsmen were injured by thrown rocks, but eventually the arrival of live ammunition and swords restored order in Scully Square. Mobile units with machine guns set up outside the armory in Bay Village. I did find mention of one woman among all these volunteers. Helen Corrin reportedly directed traffic in long white gloves and a feather boa after no man stepped up to relieve an exhausted volunteer. I think Mrs. Corrin and I would be good friends. Violence peaked the next evening, the night of September 10th, and businesses were better prepared. Some had boarded up, and others stayed open all night with armed guards. The guards were visible to discourage thieves from taking advantage of the strike. But the militia's inexperience at handling crowds resulted in dangerous attempts to assert control. In total, five residents were killed by the militia, two by civilians, and over 20 people were seriously injured. When Governor Coolidge called the strikers deserters and traitors on September 11th, a mass meeting of the police union responded. When we were honorably discharged from the United States Army, we were hailed as heroes and saviors of our country. We returned to our duties on the police force of Boston. Now, though only a few months have passed, 
We are denounced as deserters, as traitors to our city, and violators of our oath of office. The first men to raise the cry were those who have always been opposed to giving labor a living wage. It was taken up by the newspapers, who cared little for the real facts. You finally added your word of condemnation. Among us are men who have gone against spitting machine guns single-handed and captured them, and volunteering for the job. Among us are men who have ridden with dispatches through shellfire so dense that four men fell and only the fifth got through. Not one man of us ever disgraced the flag or his service. It is bitter to come home and be called deserters and traitors. We are the same men who were on the French front. Some of us fought in the Spanish War of 1898. Won't you tell the people of Massachusetts in which war you served? That evening, the Central Labor Union came very close to calling a general strike of its members in solidarity with the police force. However, they ultimately delayed the decision with the explanation that we are not to act in a manner that will give the prejudiced press and autocratic employers a chance to criticize us. Mayor Peters feared a general strike and was eager to compromise. Governor Coolidge could afford to take a firmer stance, as ultimately he wouldn't have to lead the city through the turbulence of a labor walkout. When the police union asked that the officers be reinstated so they could protect the city while a new contract was negotiated, Coolidge made the statement that brought him national fame. There is no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. Over the objections of Mayor Peters, Commissioner Curtis announced on September 13th that he planned to recruit a new police force. He fired roughly 1,100 officers and hired over 1,500 replacements from a pool of unemployed World War I veterans. Members of the United Garment Workers refused to sew uniforms for the new hires, who had to report for work in civilian clothing. The new officers hired in the wake of the strike received higher salaries and more vacation days than the strikers had. They enjoyed a starting salary of $1,400, along with a pension plan, and the department covered the cost of their uniforms and equipment. Essentially, the new officers got everything the strikers had asked for, and so Boston found itself with a new police force resented by many, especially the city's Irish, who saw this as a pointed attack from the Yankee upper class. And due to the mass hiring, the entire police force was untrained. It would take years for the department to recover. Meanwhile, Calvin Coolidge emerged a hero. The middle and upper classes, terrified by radicalism and the threat of communism, saw his actions as a patriotic defense of democracy. Within two years, he would be elected vice president of the United States. Next up is episode 54, the 1747 Impressment Riots. In 1747, a British Commodore began kidnapping sailors and working men in Boston, and the people of the city wouldn't stand for it. Three days of violence followed, in a draft riot that pitted the working class of Boston against the colonial government and Royal Navy. The trouble started on the morning of November 17, 1747. The evening before, officers from the British Navy, accompanied by the sheriff of Suffolk County, had swept through the streets of Boston. They chased down anyone they could catch who looked like a sailor. A ship's carpenter named Jonathan Tarbox was captured and later testified about the experience. Along with two or three persons, all inhabitants of Boston, going in a boat to Mystic, having their tools with them to caulk a vessel there, they were chased by three boats belonging to Commodore Knowles' squadron. 
After the British boats caught up, Tarbox tried to explain that they were Bostonians and not sailors. The British officer in charge, in a very rough manner, answered that they did not care for that, for the Commodore had ordered them to impress all they could meet without distraction. Another group stopped a merchant ship called the Mercury that was sailing out of the harbor. Of the crew of 19 sailors, the British threw 16 into chains. The remaining three sailors were not able to fully control the undermanned vessel, and it ended up suffering serious damage before they could bring it back into port. Its scheduled crews had to be cancelled while the ship's master made repairs and searched for a replacement crew. These were the press gangs of the Royal Navy, feared from Boston to Barbados to Bengal. The life of a sailor in the 18th century was not usually a happy one, and the Navy could provide few incentives to convince men to enlist. To fill out their crews, officers relied on coercion. The practice was called impressment, which basically meant that they were allowed to kidnap any British subject and make him a sailor. The practice of impressment predated the Magna Carta, so it had been in place for well over 550 years by the time our story takes place. Historian Jack Tager describes who could be impressed into the Royal Navy. Impressment was initially applied only to seamen, but over time, anyone on shipboard or in seaports was ripe for the press gang. Englishmen anywhere on the globe were subject, but there were exceptions. All landsmen except harvesters, gentlemen, apprentices, ship's officers and bosuns, and various skilled artisans. This meant that it was largely the urban lower orders, sailors, simple craftspersons, and the wide variety of common laborers of the seaports, who were the targets of the press gang. In one night in Boston, the press gangs captured 46 men. Boston was the closest North American port to London, and it had a long history with impressment, so as word of the press gang spread quickly through the town on the morning of the 17th, people were ready to take action. First, about 300 members of Boston's working class armed themselves with rusty swords, cat sticks, pitch mops, and clubs, and began rampaging through the streets. They soon encountered a lieutenant from the HMS Lark and took him captive, along with the deputy sheriff. With these hostages, the mob made its way toward the home of the royal governor, where they believed more officers, perhaps even the Commodore himself, were taking refuge. Commodore Charles Knowles was the officer in charge of the British fleet that now lay at anchor in Nantasket Roads on Boston Harbor. He was about 40 years old and had been at sea with the Navy since he was about 14. He had a reputation as an intelligent officer with a long history of victories against Spanish fleets and forts. Most recently, Charles Knowles had been appointed as the royal governor of the British fortress at Louisbourg. After two years in that position, he was appointed as commander-in-chief of the naval station in Jamaica. However, as he sailed south in October 1747, his fleet ran into a strong storm and suffered a lot of damage. In his first letter to the Admiralty, Knowles wrote that his ships had met with the most violent storm of wind I ever yet saw, in which the Canterbury was obliged to throw overboard all her sea guns to save the ship, and the Warwick lost all her masts. I shall make what haste I can to get the ships filled again. When they stumbled into Boston Harbor for repairs and a refit, sailors began deserting wholesale. 
Lewisburg still loomed large in the collective imagination of Boston. In 1745, Governor William Shirley had organized a force of over 4,000 colonial militiamen to attack the French stronghold on Cape Breton Island, then called Isle Royale. About a 1,000 came from Connecticut and New Hampshire, while Massachusetts Bay supplied the rest of the army. That spring, they sailed about 90 transport ships, reinforced by about a half a dozen ships of war from the Royal Navy, and laid siege to the strongest French fortification in North America. Against all odds, they were successful. After a month and a half of fighting, the French garrison at Louisbourg surrendered. The British authorities had been so skeptical of the militia's chances that they made no arrangements to occupy the fort in case of victory. With no British regulars on the way, it fell to the militia to garrison the fort. The colonials, however, had signed up for a siege and did not expect to serve as an occupying army when the siege was over. And once it was clear that the militia was going to have to stay at Lewisburg over the winter, Governor Shirley traveled to the fortress to address them and convince them to stay strong until spring. While he was gone, a press gang arrived in Boston. The HMS Wager anchored in Boston Harbor in November of 1745 and the captain applied for a warrant to impress sailors. This was the established legal process for impressment. The royal governor would grant a warrant to the officers of the Royal Navy to impress a crew. The warrant allowed the civilian government to apply restrictions and guidelines to the actions of the press gang. In Governor Shirley's absence, the warrant was issued by Lieutenant Governor Spencer Phipps. His order specified that residents of Massachusetts would be exempt from the press, and that only crews of incoming, not outgoing, ships should be pressed. And above all, the warrant excluded any of the men who had been in the late expedition to Lewisburg. To make sure that the warrant was followed, he charged Deputy Sheriff Nathaniel Hasey to use a number of discreet men, inhabitants of this province, and no others. This order was meant to ensure that the press gangs would know who was an inhabitant of the town and who was not preventing any violation of the warrant. For whatever reason, Hasey ignored this charge. The entire press gang was made up of British officers with no locals to guide them. They broke into several houses where Boston-based sailors were sleeping, brandishing their swords, and they carried away any man who was too slow to react. In the North End, they kicked in the door of the quarters where three sailors were staying. They were crewmen on the Resolution, a coasting vessel that carried goods up and down the New England coast. Not only that, but all three were veterans of the difficult campaign at Lewisburg. When the press gang finally got into the upstairs room where the three men were barricaded, the candles were put out and, readers, our language does not afford words bad enough for the villains, persidious and execrable wretches fell upon the poor unarmed men with their cutlasses and stabbed and hacked two of them in so terrible and inhuman manner that one of them died the next day and the other the evening following but the third had the good fortune to escape their rage by hiding himself in a closet. Moments later, the captain of the resolution showed up with a group of friends, all armed. Most of the press gang fled, but a bosun and a ship's boy were caught. They would be prosecuted for the murder of the two sailors and sentenced to death, but the crown issued a stay of execution and let the accused escape from the province. This wasn't Boston's first experience with impressment, and it wouldn't be our last. 
As early as 1693, the governor of Massachusetts had a Royal Navy captain arrested and sent to London in chains after he attempted to impress Boston residents without a warrant. In 1702, Lieutenant Governor Povey went as far as ordering the guns at Castle William, today's Castle Island, to open fire on the HMS Swift to keep her from leaving the harbor with illegally impressed sailors on board. That isn't to say that it was impossible to impress sailors in the town of Boston. Throughout the 18th century, British captains who were willing to work with the civilian government of the province and follow the rules were able to fill out their crews with unwitting and unwilling men captured in our town. For example, Governor Belcher issued a warrant to the captain of the Astrea in June of 1740, saying that His Excellency issue a warrant to Edward Winslow Esquire, Sheriff of the County of Suffolk, to impress 20 seamen not being inhabitants of this province, nor belonging to any outward-bound vessel, fishing vessel, or coaster, for the recruit of His Majesty's ship, the Astrea. While perfectly legal, an impressment like that would still shake Boston. Sailors on ships coming into port would suddenly find themselves in His Majesty's service, whether they liked it or not. Despite assurances by the governor, the working class, especially dock workers, would live in constant fear while press gangs were about. And there was a sort of trickle-up effect. Because they risked losing their crews to the Navy if they docked in Boston, civilian captains would route their vessels to other ports. Without shipping, the merchant class of Boston suffered. In 1741, a legislative committee attempted to ease the hardship of coasters, fishermen, wood carriers, and others, being interrupted and hindered from bringing supplies as heretofore, of which there seems to be danger also for the future, unless some remedy be provided for the prevention thereof. New York and Philadelphia were further from both the British Isles and the seat of the war against France that was being fought in coastal Canada. Without impressment, their economies benefited, while Boston's languished. When Commodore Knowles arrived in Boston Harbor in the fall of 1747, he may have had a reputation as an accomplished naval officer, but he also had a reputation for ignoring local laws and customs when it came time to impress sailors into his crew. In June of 1743, Knowles had sparked a riot in the British Caribbean colony of Antigua when he ordered press gangs to target a local privateer vessel. He did not have a warrant from the colonial governor, and the crew was based locally in Antigua, both of which should have exempted them. In addition, privateers were considered a valuable defense for merchant vessels against Spanish and French raiders. The following October, he nearly sparked a riot in Barbados, when he again targeted privateers for impressment. This time, however, he left the island for another posting before the press gangs could do their work. By the time Knowles and his fleet arrived in Boston Harbor in 1747, there were a lot more exemptions from impressment than just privateers. In 1708, the British Parliament had passed an Act for the Encouragement of Trade to America, which was commonly known as the Sixth of the Anne Act, because it was passed in the sixth year of the reign of Queen Anne. This law attempted to appease the colonists in North America who opposed impressment by banning press gangs from the entire Western Hemisphere. After the War of the Spanish Succession ended in 1713, the Crown argued that the act had been only temporary. Colonies in the Caribbean resigned themselves to the resumption of impressment, but the mainland colonies in North America held fast to their exemption. 
It was only in the early 1740s that impressment once more became the law of the land in North America, including in Boston. After decades without the threat, its reintroduction was not popular. Impressment required a warrant from the governor, and pretty much everybody but incoming seamen was exempted. Skilled laborers, outgoing sailors, and anyone who resided in Massachusetts was supposed to be safe from the press gang. Commodore Knowles ignored all that. In a single day, his press gangs kidnapped 46 men, including ship's carpenters and other skilled laborers, outgoing sailors, and local residents. And he did it without a warrant from the governor. As the sun rose on November 17, 1747, a mob of some 300 people were marching in the street, armed with cutlasses, boat hooks, and improvised weapons. They seized some unlucky officers of Knoll's fleet and made their way toward Governor Shirley's house, where they found more officers were being sheltered. None of the accounts we looked at made it clear exactly what house they went to, but it was probably the province house. As you heard earlier in the episode, his summer residence, Shirley Place, was in Roxbury. It was the royal governor's prerogative to live in the province house when he was in Boston. Province House was located at the corner of today's Province and Bromfield Streets. Conveniently, it was just steps from both the Common and the Courthouse where the state government met. Unfortunately, it was also a central location for an angry mob to gather. Shirley would later write that when he heard the mob was coming to his doorstep, I immediately sent orders to the colonel of the regiment to raise the militia of the town and suppress the mob by force and if need was, to fire upon them with ball, which were scarcely delivered to him when they appeared before my gates. Unfortunately for Governor Shirley, only a few officers of the militia turned out. By all accounts, most of the militia members had, by that time, joined the rioting crowds in demanding the return of the impressed Massachusetts men. Fearing that the mob would soon break down the doors and carry them away, another source says, the officers of the Navy within carried themselves with carbines and placing themselves at the head of the staircase seemed resolved to proceed to the last extremity. Meanwhile, Governor Shirley stepped outside to reason with the rioters, accompanied by Thomas Hutchinson. In three decades, Hutchinson would be the last royal governor of Massachusetts, but in 1747, he was both a Boston selectman and the Speaker of the Massachusetts House. During a tense confrontation in the dooryard, Shirley put himself physically between the leaders of the mob and their hostages, allowing the naval officers to get into his house to safety. Then Hutchinson, who was a very popular politician at the time, tried to calm the crowd and convince them not to force their way into the house. At that moment, a sheriff's deputy appeared and tried to order the crowd to disperse. Sheriffs and their deputies were frequent participants in press gangs, so the mob's temper was inflamed. They assaulted and beat the deputy right there in Shirley's dooryard, then, Drake's History and Antiquities relates, the mob took him, and in a triumphant manner bore him to the front of the townhouse, and there fixed him in the stocks. This they looked upon as a kind of victory, and it seemed to cool their rage, and disposed them to separate and go to dinner. With the morning's excitement over, the town turned quiet for the rest of the day. During the lull, Governor Shirley assembled the House of Representatives at the courthouse, or the townhouse, which of course is the building we now know as the Old State House. 
The legislators and the governor discussed strategies for dispersing the mob, such as issuing a proclamation or offering rewards for informants. However, as long as the militia refused to turn out, there was little the governor could do to enforce his will. That evening, the mob took to the streets again. Hutchinson would later estimate its size at several thousand, which is remarkable when you consider that the entire population of Boston at that time consisted of about 16,000 people. In a letter to the Board of Trade, Shirley recalled, The mob now increased and joined by some inhabitants came to the courthouse just after candlelight, armed as in the morning, assaulted the council chamber by throwing stones and brickbats in at the windows and having broke all the windows of the lower floor, where a few of the militia offices were assembled, forcibly entered into it, and obliged most of the officers to retire up into the council chamber, where the mob was expected soon to follow them, but prevented by some of the few officers below who behaved better. Imagine the scene. Governor Shirley, the governor's council, and a few members of the House of Representatives were barricaded on the upper level of the courthouse. On the first floor, the mob had smashed out all the windows and forced their way inside, waving swords, clubs, and everything short of actual pitchforks and tiki torches. The narrow stairway leading upstairs formed a bottleneck, preventing the mass of rioters from forcing their way upstairs, and it was blocked by a handful of brave and loyal militia officers. The people of Boston could elect their town selectmen and their representatives to the great and general court, but they had no vote for Parliament, and they had no say in the workings of the Royal Navy. If government requires the consent of the governed, the mob was now making it clear that the people did not consent to the manner in which the press gang had operated. You have to imagine that the negotiations that followed were tense, to say the least. First, two popular members of the House went out onto the balcony of the upper chamber, the same balcony from which the Declaration of Independence was first read to the people of Boston in 1776. They tried to calm the crowd with little success. Then Hutchinson urged Shirley to address the crowd. He went onto the narrow stairway and gave a brief address to the crowd, then spoke with the leaders of the group. Shirley's account said that the crowd demanded that he... Get the impressed inhabitants and some of the outward-bound seamen discharged, which, against my inclinations, and to prevent their charging any bad consequences which might happen from this tumult upon my refusal, I yielded. Hutchinson recalled that the governor, in a well-judged speech, expressed his great disapprobation of the impress, and promised his utmost endeavors to obtain the discharge of every one of the inhabitants, and at the same time gently reproved the irregular proceedings. After some additional back and forth, the mob agreed to disperse. They said that they would return to the courthouse the next morning to verify that the governor had kept his word and the impressed Massachusetts men had been released. Rather than quietly returning home, most of the mob started toward a nearby shipyard where a 20-gun ship was being built for the Navy. On the way, Shirley recounts that they were diverted from their purpose against the king's ship by the sudden coming to shore of a barge, which they took to belong to one of Mr. Knowles's squadron seized, and carried it in procession through the town, with an intention to burn it in my courtyard. Draker calls that this was done with as much seeming ease as if it had been in water. Shirley then continues, I ordered a party of officers to go out and oppose their entrance at my outward gate. 
which about ten of them immediately did, and upon the appearance of the mobs preparing to force that gate open, cocked and presented their muskets at him through an open palisade fence. This appears to have had the desired effect, as the crowd desisted and immediately altered their scheme to that of burning the barge in an out part of the common. The crowd seemed satisfied with their success, though it later turned out that the barge did not belong to the Knowles fleet, but to a Scottish merchant. Throughout the night, parties from the mob broke into houses, taverns, and a naval hospital, searching for additional officers and taking them hostage. With the morning light on November 18th came the realization that the militia had dispersed into the crowds. Governor Shirley was left without an effective force to impose order, or even to protect his household and the naval officers he was harboring. In the face of an increasingly hostile population, Shirley did not think it consistent with the honor of His Majesty's government to remain longer in the midst of it. The governor fled to Castle William, the fortress on Castle Island in the harbor, where he would be under the protection of the British regulars. Once safely behind the fort's walls, he sent a letter to Knowles aboard the Canterbury, asking him to release the impressed men in return for the hostages. Jack Tager recounts the Commodore's reaction. The hot-headed Knowles decided to punish the rioters. Men present on the deck of Knowles' flagship, HMS Canterbury, gave depositions later affirming his intentions to rake the town with shells. One mariner, James Bernard Jr., heard Knowles call the gunnery officer to prepare 24 guns with shot, saying, By God, I'll now see if the king's government is not as good as a mob. Another witness, Nathaniel Parker, saw Knowles read a letter informing him of Shirley's flight, which in great passion he tore to pieces and with a severe stomp ordered the guns to get ready to be loaded. A carpenter from Boston was on board at that moment making repairs and said, Oh, how will that do? Sir, the righteous will suffer, and the wicked, how will you find out the rebels? He answered, The North End people were the rebels. I told him, I should suffer then, for I lived there. He replied, No, no, I'll take care of that. I will punish the guilty. I told him he must be very curious in throwing his shot then. A flurry of messages then passed back and forth between Shirley and Knowles, and Shirley was able to at least talk the Commodore out of shelling the town. You probably knew this already, as the town of Boston still exists. Knowles would not release the impressed men until his officers, who were being held hostage, were released. The mob was reluctant to give up their bargaining chip, but also wary of the Commodore's threat to burn the town, and a threat from Shirley that he would bring in the wider provincial militia to restore order. Finally, on the evening of the 19th, they released their prisoners, and the Commodore released all of the impressed men who were Massachusetts residents. Shirley's letters reveal that the militia finally assembled that night, saying, A strong military watch was kept in the town, and the riot suppressed. Hutchinson recounted that, The next day there was an uncommon appearance of the militia of the town of Boston. Many persons taking their muskets, who never carried one upon any other occasion, and the governor was conducted to his house with as great a parade as when he first assumed the government. On November 30th, Commodore Knowles and his fleet weighed anchor and set sail for the West Indies, 
as Hutchinson put it, to the joy of the rest of the town. You'd think that such an incident would be a blemish on the record of an officer, but Knowles was promoted to admiral upon arriving in Jamaica. He would have a prominent role in the Battle of Havana in 1748 and be appointed as royal governor of Jamaica in 1752. After retiring from the Royal Navy in 1770, he was invited to the court of Russia's Catherine the Great, where he served as a naval advisor as she modernized her fleet. It wouldn't be the last experience of impressment in Massachusetts. Right up to the Revolutionary period, the people of Massachusetts continued to resent the practice of naval impressment and to resist it when they could. In 1768, for example, a press warrant was issued for the Port of Boston, but it could not be enforced because a mob met the press gang boat at the docks and refused to let it land. The very next year, four Boston men resisted a press gang with such violence that they killed the officer in charge. They were prosecuted for piracy and murder, but acquitted on grounds of justifiable homicide. Even 65 years after the Knowles riot, well after America had won her independence, British impressment of American sailors was one of the major causes of the War of 1812. At first, we thought it was somewhat curious that so many histories of the impressment riots would rely so heavily on accounts from Thomas Hutchinson and William Shirley. However, the very next entry for 1747 in Drake's History and Antiquities might shed some light on the topic. On the 9th of December occurred a fire in the townhouse which destroyed that building, together with many records and papers of great importance. A news report the next week would say, Last Wednesday morning, the town was exceedingly surprised by a most terrible fire, which broke out in the courthouse, whereby that spacious and beautiful building, except the bare walls, was entirely destroyed. After smoldering overnight, a fast-moving fire broke out before the people came to either manage the engines or save the province records, books, papers, plans, pictures, or anything else in the chambers or apartments, to the inestimable loss of the province. But through the mercy of God, the county records under the western staircase below, and part of the province records under the eastern staircase below, as also copies of the minutes of the council from the beginning to 1737, being at the secretary's dwelling house, were happily saved. The brick courthouse had replaced the earlier wooden townhouse, which itself burned in 1711. The 1747 fire gutted the courthouse to the bare brick walls. When the new interior was finished, today's familiar old state house was created. Finally, we have the story of the Broad Street Riot of 1837, which we released this June as episode 84. The Broad Street Riot was one of Boston's many historical melees. This one took place when a company of Yankee firefighters ran into an Irish funeral. Despite our reputation as a coastal liberal enclave, Boston does have a history of hostility towards newcomers. When Irish immigrants began arriving in our harbor in large numbers, Yankee nativists welcomed them with violence and prejudice. Before long, a funeral procession in the wrong place at the wrong time led to a brawl with well over 10,000 participants and onlookers. On the afternoon of Sunday, June 11, 1837, the mayor of Boston was seated in his accustomed place in the organ loft of King's Chapel engaged in handing round peppermints to his associates in the choir with the laudable purpose of helping them to keep awake during the service. His small children, seated with their lovely mother in the square pew below, regarded this custom with jealous disapprobation. The service was quite as soporific for them as for members of the choir, 
and the tenors were said to be so fond of peppermints that there were only a few left for family distribution after the benediction. On this particular Sunday, however, no one could be unduly sleepy. Hardly had Dr. Greenwood begun his, Dearly beloved brethren, the scripture moveth us, and so on, when something else moved or disconcerted the congregation. The Tremont Street door of the chapel was violently burst open, and three men hurried up the gallery stairs. A moment later, they came down again, bringing the mayor with them, and they could then be heard running down School Street under the open windows of the chapel. The service went on without further interruption, though the choir missed the mayor's fine bass voice and directing hand. The members of the congregation remembered that there had been a fire alarm earlier in the afternoon, and may have surmised that some threatening spread of the fire had occasioned the hasty summons for the mayor. Thus, Samuel A. Elliott, grandson of Mayor Samuel Elliott, recalls his grandfather's summons to the Broad Street Riot in his 1937 book, Being Mayor of Boston, a Hundred Years Ago. There are two social factors that, combined, led to this explosive event. The first, which we've discussed several times in past episodes, is the fierce anti-Catholic prejudice that was so prevalent in early and mid-19th century Boston. Prior to the potato famine in Ireland in 1845, and the subsequent immigration wave, Boston had been a very homogenous city. It was English-descended and almost universally Protestant. A shift began when the Irish population more than tripled from 2,000 in 1820 to 7,000 in 1830. That shift became tectonic after the potato famine began. By the 1850 census, first- and second-generation Irish immigrants made up about 60,000 of Boston's 130,000 residents. The newcomers sought work as laborers and formed communities by the waterfront and along Broad and Ann Streets. And just like today, the stigmas of living in poverty fueled prejudice. Mass Moments tells us that in 1825, confrontations along the waterfront became so common that the mayor stationed six constables in the district from 10 p.m. until sunrise just to keep the peace. The Catholicism practiced by the Irish played a large part in the general disdain expressed by Yankee wasps. You can learn more about the historical roots of this rift in Episode 75, Pope's Night Remastered. On Broad Street, near today's South Station, it was common for groups of nativists to vandalize Irish homes and attack Irish immigrants. In 1832, Mayor Charles Wells received a petition praying that some measure may be taken to suppress the dangerous riots, routes, and tumultuous assemblies in and about Broad Street. Working-class native Bostonians resented the newly arrived Irish as they competed for jobs. For the political class, Mass Moments describes another dimension to the prejudice. Boston's political elite had other reasons to resent the Irish. Most Irish identified with Jacksonian appeals to the common man, and with Andrew Jackson himself, who made much of his Irish lineage. By supporting Jackson's campaign, the Boston Irish helped him defeat Massachusetts native son John Quincy Adams in the 1828 presidential race. As Boston's newspapers, ministers, politicians, and public speakers began to wage an all-out campaign of anti-Irish denunciation, confrontation seemed inevitable. 
When it came, it was no surprise that it involved an Irish funeral. Irish funerals were, and continue to be, quite different from Protestant funerals. Much judgment was passed on the way that the Irish sent off their dead. Gatherings that lasted several days and included drinking, dancing, singing, and, gasp, laughter and merriment. The second factor that led to the explosive moment was the city's practice of engaging volunteers almost exclusively in fighting fires. Rather than maintain a paid department as we do today, the city paid the company that was the first to arrive on the scene. Unsurprisingly, this led to fierce competition and occasional violence. The volunteers were nearly all working-class Yankees, meaning American-born Protestants. These were the class of men who stood to lose out as Irish workers found employment. Likewise, the Irish had a deep resentment of the volunteer firemen who just three years earlier failed to put out a fire at the Ursuline Convent in Charlestown. Instead, they added to the destruction, an event detailed in episode 11. Patrick Brown of Historical Digressions describes the events that unfolded before Mayor Elliot was pulled from the choir box. At about 3 p.m. that afternoon, engine company number 20, known as the Extinguisher, had just returned from a fire in Roxbury. Tired and ready for a pint or two, the firemen stowed their engine in their engine house on East Street, now in Boston's Leather District, but then largely an Irish residential neighborhood, and most of the small company went to a nearby pub. About the time they emerged, a funeral procession of about 500 Irish immigrants was making its way up East Street. The funeral was for John Copeland, whom the Boston Post called a very respectable man. Boston fire companies of that time were mostly volunteers, Protestant, American-born young men of modest means who resented the newly arrived Irish immigrants for a variety of reasons, primarily because they competed for jobs, which are now growing ever more scarce. The firemen attempted to make their way along the sidewalks to their engine house, but the dense crowd made it difficult for them to pass through. One of the firemen, 19-year-old George Fay, was smoking a cigar, and one of the Irishmen demanded that he extinguish it out of respect for the dead. Fay allegedly refused, gave the Irishman a few choice words, and a brawl ensued. The small group of firemen were massively outnumbered. They retreated to their engine house, things quieted, and the procession moved on. Various newspaper reports and court testimony contradict as to what happened next. In fact, there are multiple versions of just about every aspect of this event. The upshot is, the foreman of the company, W.W. Miller, ordered the firemen to bring their engine out of the engine house and to ring the bell, sounding an alarm that would attract other fire companies as if there was a fire. Miller testified that he gave the order as some Irishman attempted to get into the engine house, and he feared for the lives of his company. Others argue that Miller was looking for revenge. After his order was carried out, Miller went on foot to the nearby engine house of Company Number 8. According to the Boston Evening Transcript, a fireman, probably Miller, burst into the quarters of Number 8 shouting, The Irish have risen upon us and are going to kill us! Nearby Company 9, responding to what they thought was a legitimate fire alarm, arrived just as the funeral procession was turning onto New Broad Street. 
Their horse-drawn wagon veered into the crowd, scattering and knocking down the mourners. The Irish assumed that the assault was deliberate, and another brawl erupted. As more fire companies arrived, and Irishmen poured out of nearby homes into the street to help their friends and relatives, the fight escalated into a full-blown riot. Protestant workmen came running to the aid of the firefighters, and a melee ensued. Before long, an estimated 800 men were doing battle with sticks, stones, bricks, and cudgels, with at least 10,000 more urging them on. Now outnumbered, the Irish were defeated and driven back to their homes. Instead of dying down, the violence turned to looting as a nativist gang raided nearby houses, breaking doors and windows and beating the occupants. Furniture and other possessions were destroyed and thrown into the street. According to a historian quoted in Peter F. Stevens's Hidden History of the Boston Irish, little-known stories from Ireland's next parish over, feather beds were ripped up and their contents scattered to the winds in such quantities that for a while, Broad Street seemed to be having a snowstorm. The pavement in spots buried ankle-deep in feathers. After raging for about three hours, the riot was quelled when Mayor Samuel A. Elliott called in the National Lancers, a newly formed cavalry company, and some 800 other members of the state militia with fixed bayonets. Among them were the Montgomery Guards, a short-lived Irish-American infantry company. Named for Richard Montgomery, an Irish-born general who had served in the Continental Army, the Montgomery Guards formed just six months earlier, when the petition was approved by State Governor Edward Everett Hale. After the War of 1812, the size of the U.S. Army was greatly reduced, and a large number of volunteer militia companies sprung up across the country to fill the gap. The militias protected local people and property during times of war and civil unrest. In addition to regular drills and inspections, volunteers attended banquets, dances, and parades in smart-looking uniforms. For working-class men, it was a way to gain social status and attract the ladies. And for immigrants in particular, it was a chance to display their loyalty to their new country. The Montgomery Guards, eight naturalized Irish immigrants and 32 native-born citizens of Irish descent, were provided with custom-designed green uniforms with scarlet facings and gold trim and caps bearing their own company emblem, an American eagle alighting on an Irish harp. The guards did such a good job at this, their first piece of action, that city officials and the local press commended their performance. A week later, the governor himself reviewed their first parade, which was followed by a formal banquet. Almost three months later to the day, on the morning of September 12, 1837, the annual fall muster was held on Boston Common. The Montgomery Guards joined the other nine companies that made up the light infantry regiment of the Boston Brigade. Just as the companies finished moving into line, a signal was given, and the rank and file of the city guard marched off the field and back to their armory playing Yankee Doodle on the fife and drum. Their officers were left standing at attention. Five other infantry companies followed suit. The Lafayette Guards, the Independent Fusiliers, the Washington Light Infantry, the Mechanics Rifles, and the Winslow Guards. This was an insult to the highest degree. Heads held high, 
The Montgomery guards went through their planned maneuvers with the remaining companies, all while being taunted and jeered by spectators. When the brigade was dismissed that afternoon, the Montgomery guards marched back to their armory in Dock Square near Faneuil Hall. A hostile crowd followed them down Tremont Street, shouting slurs and throwing stones, lumps of coal, and wood. Neither the local constabulary nor the other militia companies came to their defense. By the time they made it to their armory, the crowd had grown to about 3,000. The Montgomery guards were trapped inside as the angry mob threatened to storm the building. Only when Mayor Elliott arrived with a group of prominent and armed citizens was the crowd persuaded to disperse. Shockingly, several of the rioters were arrested and tried in the municipal court. Two of the offenders were sentenced to three years in the House of Correction, and another to two years. The local press was severe on the militiamen who deserted their posts and denounced the rioters, while the Montgomery guards were praised for their discipline and restraint in the face of provocation. A local paper, the Post Atlas, details what happened. The review yesterday passed off remarkably well, and the troops looked elegantly. Their evolutions in the afternoon evinced a discipline and knowledge of military tactics highly creditable to the officers and men, and afforded much pleasure to a large number of spectators. An occurrence in the morning tended somewhat to mar the harmony of the occasion. Some prejudice has been expressed by several of the late infantry companies against a new corps called the Montgomery Guards, composed of naturalized citizens and the descendants of foreigners and the consequence was that immediately after marching onto the parade ground in the morning, the privates and non-commissioned officers of the Washington Light Infantry, City Guards, and Lafayette Guards, and a large portion of the Fusiliers and Mechanic Riflemen, left the field in violation of orders, and did not return. We deeply regret this act of insubordination as setting a bad example and derogatory to the character of good disciplinarians. We think the prejudice against the guards is founded on erroneous impressions, and is one which should not be allowed to exist among intelligent freemen. The story that the guards are composed principally of Irishmen is incorrect, as 32 of the 40 members are native-born citizens, and 8 only are naturalized Irishmen, we are informed. But even if they were all naturalized citizens, we cannot perceive why they should be treated with scorn while their organization is in strict conformance with our laws, and their deportment unexceptionable. Washington did not object to fighting for liberty with Lafayette, DeKalb, Steuben, and an illustrious host of foreigners who poured their blood out in the battles of our revolution. Nor did Franklin, Adams, Jefferson, and Hancock refuse to sign the Declaration of Independence because it bore the signatures of Floyd, Smith, Taylor, and Wilson. We do not believe that the present generation are any more patriotic or wiser than their fathers, or that the children run any risk of disgracing themselves by following the examples of their ancestors. In February of 1838, Governor Everett ordered the disbandment of all six mutinous companies. In April, however, succumbing to political pressure, he ordered the disbandment of the Montgomery Guards as well on the grounds that their reappearance would provoke outrages of a dangerous character. Within six months, all six of the offending companies had been rechartered under different names, but with the same officers and the same enlisted men. 
the Montgomery Guards were not given permission to reorganize. Miraculously, no immediate deaths resulted from the Broad Street Riot. In one case, a Yankee fireman was knocked unconscious, and false reports of his death caused the rioting to escalate. A local paper announced the following Monday, There have been many battered and broken heads, and many bodily bruises, but we are inclined to believe that there has been no actual loss of life. However, thousands of dollars in damage was done to the property belonging to some of the city's poorest inhabitants. The militia arrested 34 Irishmen and four firemen. A grand jury indicted 14 of the Irish and all four of the firemen. At the municipal court trial, a Yankee jury acquitted all four of the firemen and convicted four Irishmen, three of whom were sentenced to several months of hard labor. While there's no easy fix for racism, as indicated by our current reality, three months later, Mayor Elliott established a professional, paid fire department, with all new hires requiring the appointment of the mayor and aldermen. To learn more about each of these riots, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 101. We'll have images and original sources detailing all the action. Don't forget that you can get a free Hub History sticker by writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. Just take a screenshot of your review and send it to us at podcast at hubhistory.com, along with your mailing address. We'll also be selecting our favorite review at the end of October and sending the reviewer a book we've discussed on the podcast. We also have some feedback to share this week. A new listener named Kayla tweeted, Just discovered the Hub History podcast. Where have you been all my life? Thanks for listening, Kayla. And thanks to at Slater's Gone Slade for telling her about us. Listener Michelle S. recently listened to episode 97 about the fugitive king killers who hid in Boston and said, A belated thanks for this episode, which I listened to last week. Amazing hidden history. Someone who goes by Boston Auto on Twitter had some feedback on episode 99. This episode made me think for a second. Livestock drives are the origin of the phrase in droves, and it basically means a stampede. Neat. We got a few comments about reaching our 100th episode and about our interview with historian J.L. Bell in that episode. For example, Tracy V. Wilson, the world-famous co-host of Stuff You Missed in History Class, reached out on Twitter to say, congrats on 100. I think that basically means we're celebrities now. And Michael Troy, the host of the excellent American Revolution podcast, said, Congrats on reaching 100. Can't wait for the next 100. Love this episode as well. Great timing with the 250th anniversary. If you aren't listening to his show, you should. He's in the middle of a run of Boston-centric episodes right now, so it's probably a good time to get on board with the show. Check it out at amrevpodcast.com. Somebody named Walt commented on the show notes for episode 100 to say, Amazing and absolutely riveting podcast. I'm in town for the 250th, and this podcast was a wonderful prelude. If you're not on Twitter, you can always comment on the show notes like Walt did. Thanks for the kind words, Walt. Glad you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast.hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. 